this little house, we have this community. It was all great, and then it just went to hell. The whole community went to hell with everybody flooding. I'm Anna Huntsman. And I'm Jake Steinberg. This is State of Emergency. These disasters keep happening, but what are we learning? What are we doing differently to adapt to this new normal? News 21 traveled across the country and spoke with people who don't want their community to become the next Houston or Paradise. But it's hard to get people to think about disasters until one happens to them. Anna spoke to a homeowner who learned that even if you want to be smart about where you live, you can't get a full picture of the risk. Yeah, I spoke with her in Charleston, South Carolina, a city that's doing some learning of its own. So this was our backyard, you know, and this is where I look. This is like where my child grew up. This is, we have a tree house there. You know, the slide is still there, the swings. This is Anna Zimmerman. She's a biologist who teaches at the College of Charleston. We had deck parties. My husband was building a workshop. Uh, now it's, I guess, our gate has come down. Um, She's showing me around the backyard of the house she used to live in. It's at the end of a cul-de-sac in a quaint neighborhood in the suburbs. Here we had tomatoes and, you know, we would try to grow them like higher than the house so we would get these tomato cages and we had to be on a ladder one time to pick them. That was fun. This house has been empty since 2017 after it flooded twice. Her garden is overgrown with weeds. The wooden planks that used to be cages for the giant tomato plants are now just lying on the ground. So this was built in wetlands, and when we had a structural engineer come, um, he was digging this out, and he alerted us to the fact that the foundation is sinking. She's digging down into the dirt, revealing the slab of concrete that was once above ground. He actually told me this house is hopeless, as, is all, as are all the houses in this neighborhood. Anna moved to Charleston with her husband and newborn baby in 2005 when she was hired at the college. It seemed like this was a dream job, golden opportunity. It's a wonderful, beautiful city. They found a small starter home within their price range on Shoreham Road in James Island. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath, eight minutes from the beach. The selling point was its spacious backyard. We didn't, you know, have much knowledge of the Charleston area, topography, these sorts of things, like what the concerns would be. But we did actually ask about hurricanes here, and we were told by the realtor that the house had no history of anything and that the house actually had nothing during Hurricane Hugo. Hurricane Hugo was, for many years, the most devastating hurricane to ever hit Charleston. It knocked down houses, it flooded roadways, it decimated many of the historic forests that had been around since the plantation days. Those who have lived in the city for a long time still talk about it to this day. In fact, it sort of became a measure for whether your house is flood safe. If the house survived Hugo, it could survive anything. In October 2015, Charleston was hit by what scientists call a 1,000-year flood. That means there is a 1 in 1,000 chance that the area would flood in any given year. It started with heavy rainfall in the middle of the night. What that night was like was hearing something strange and getting out of bed and stepping into water. It's the strangest thing. You're asleep, and then your, your, your instinct is to run and flip the lights on, and then you see water, and your instinct is to take a bunch of towels and put them everywhere, and this is going crazy. It's just a freaky experience. Other houses on Shoreham Road flooded too. Charleston flooded the next year during Hurricane Matthew. Anna and her family evacuated, and some Shoreham homes flooded again. Anna's house was actually spared this time. The year after, she wasn't so lucky. Tropical Storm Irma flooded the city. Anna remembers watching it happen. I remember distinctly 
after our home had flooded and other homes had flooded. And again, there's like running around trying to help the elderly people on that street, going up in the treehouse to just get a visual view of the street. And I remember thinking, I've seen the future. And as weird as that sounds, like I just saw houses that looked like they were sitting in a lake. And I heard someone screaming because their house was flooding. And I just remember that, like very, it's a very visceral time that I just, and at that moment, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Anna had had enough. The dream home on Shoreham Road just wasn't suitable to live in anymore. She had an engineer come out to assess the damage and see if it could be claimed as a total loss. To her surprise, her insurance company denied her claim. Their justification was an even bigger surprise. They denied our claim because it was revealed that our house had an inaccurate elevation on the deed. And it was actually came out that it was built four feet below what it should have been built. FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program doesn't apply to homes that aren't built up to code. So at this point, Anna went into panic mode. She'd been living in a house that wasn't up to code totally unbeknownst to her. But panic mode didn't last long. She's a scientist. She wanted to get to the bottom of this. Several meetings with public officials and records requests later, it turns out that not only was her home not built up to code, but the city actually knew and had allowed it to happen. We spent hours and hours and hours searching some of these things, and some of the transcripts that we found was absolutely unbelievable. Anna's got a whole paper trail. Like I said, she's a scientist. The owners wanted their money back when they found out that um, there was a problem with the elevation. So the city held a hearing which they did not inform the owners, and they granted a variance. FEMA got wind of the variance and wrote the city of Charleston a reprimand letter in 1989 about this, but the city didn't do anything. So the developer actually built all the homes in her subdivision too low, and when it was brought to the city's attention, they granted an exception. I've seen Anna's paper trail. In the transcript from a meeting about the Shoreham houses, the city's chief building official at the time said, I see no problem with it. It's only a matter of three or four inches. The city granted another variance in the 90s when former owners converted garage space into a living space. That's against FEMA's guidelines for spaces below flood elevation. FEMA issued a second letter of reprimand. But none of this was ever disclosed to Anna until she embarked on her investigation, making those requests with the city and FEMA. If Anna sold her house today, future homeowners wouldn't know any of this either. She's not going to do that, though. I had my child living in a bedroom for years, and I, we thought our child had allergies, pollen allergies. When we ripped open the walls, they were filled with mold, and it was not mold from the flood, it was from past events. I'm furious of that. Furious. I would have never, and that's one reason why I will not flip my house. There will never be another child that experiences that in that house. Remember, this all happened decades ago. But the threat of flooding in Charleston is still severe. The city is at sea level in many places, and past mistakes, like in Anna's case, put homes at risk when the next big hurricane comes. Plus, FEMA's privacy laws prevent you from fully knowing your house's disaster history. They have no idea of the risk. And even if you try to become informed, like I was trying to become informed of my house, and people were telling me, well, you just didn't do due diligence, you cannot make an informed choice. Even if you want to make an informed choice, you cannot make an informed choice. 
Anna, what exactly are these privacy laws? So FEMA cannot disclose a home's flood claim history to anyone except the homeowner, and the homeowner has to request it in writing. That's established under the Privacy Act of 1974. So even if you do request it, you're only getting FEMA data, and your house could have flooded more times than that. And is there anything the city can do to keep homes out of areas that flood? Well, the city can set zoning and building codes, but ultimately, property owners can do what they want with their land. And that's a challenge nationally with keeping homes out of harm's way. Mm, that's true. Uh, but, but the power to control zoning, like changing how many homes you can build on a piece of land, that's actually a, a big piece of this puzzle. I went to San Diego to see what happens when homes are built in areas prone to fires. And I started in Valley Center, which you'll remember as the home of the first person we heard in this podcast. So in nine minutes, it went five miles and burned our entire property line and we were trapped. That was Allison Watson, whose evacuation in 2003 did not go as planned. That fire was one of several massive fires that scorched San Diego in 2003. Since then, we've learned a lot about these mega fires, like how climate change is making them worse. But when I traveled to San Diego, I met people who told me some lessons haven't been learned. So the fire came through that canyon right there. I'm in the car with Michael O'Connor, a retired firefighter who lives in Valley Center, a rural community 30 miles north of the city. And then the wind changed, and then it came up through this valley right through Allison's house. As he shows me around, I really get a sense for how a career firefighter thinks. He points out neighbors whose lawns are overgrown, lists ways a fire could start, bonfire, cigarette, a spark from a vehicle. But his biggest focus is on the roads. As you can see, the brush is pretty thick already. This is the only road into Paradise Mountain. There's a lot of rural areas where it's like this. So. O'Connor fought a lot of fires in his 32 years with the Escondido Fire Department. He retired in 2010, but he hasn't stopped trying to keep his community safe. Lately, he's been fighting a political fight and he takes me to what he's been fighting over. Right here to the left, behind the fire station. As far as I can see, behind those fields right there will be all homes. A developer wants to build over 1,700 homes in the hills near Valley Center. Thousands of new neighbors using the same roads. O'Connor is worried that added traffic means when the next fire comes through, his community won't be able to get out. I I tell a lot of these developers and I tell a lot of these politicians, I've been there when people are evacuating. It's not a normal situation. People are fearful. They're they're panicking. They do things that uh, probably they wouldn't do on an everyday basis, and they cause chaos. And you can always say, you know, get ready, set, go. But until the flames are coming at you, you really don't know how you're going to react. They, they get these talking heads to sign papers saying, oh, yeah, you can evacuate here. There'll be no problem. You can get so many cars an hour out of here. Look at those people up in Paradise that burned in their cars. The roads in Paradise up in Northern California couldn't handle the whole town trying to get out all at once. It was a traffic jam with deadly consequences. We've got the road completely blocked. We've got both sides of the road engulfed. Uh, come on, people. It's time to effing go. People are just People are leaving their cars. Oh, my God. It's okay. Get people out. And it's not like the county can just build more roads for people to get out. It's mountainous. Main roads have to follow a valley or hug the side of a cliff. They have a road there on West Lilac 
where come around the bend, if there's a truck coming on there, you're, you're almost pushed off to the side. Can you imagine a fire evacuating 2,100 homes in those areas? Urban sprawl is nothing new in California, but in San Diego County, developers are pushing further and further out. The developers have found cheap land because the farmers can't afford to farm anymore. And it's cheaper than buying into to the urban areas to build homes. So let's go into the rural areas where there's no infrastructure, where there's no roads, where the fire service is at a minimum. Let's do it there. It's called leapfrog development. So-called leapfrog development is a big issue in San Diego these days. The name is fitting. On a map, it looks like the suburbs have jumped into the countryside. But in doing so, they've landed somewhere that is, more often than not, highly flammable. I wanted to understand why these projects get approved. So I went downtown to an ornate Spanish revival building on the bay. It's where the county board of supervisors meets. And today, they're deciding whether to approve one of these projects. The project is a master plan community consisting of single-family residential uses. The boardroom is packed with people for and against ADARA, a planned community south of the city. This is a public hearing, so each side gets to have their say. A woman approaches the lectern. She's wearing a green sticker, like the rest of the supporters. Good afternoon, Chairwoman and Board Supervisors. My name is Jax Anderson, and I live in San Diego, and I'm an extremely concerned citizen of San Diego. I cannot believe we're even having this conversation. There's a massive, massive shortage of houses, and I personally am being affected by it. Yes, I'm one of the blessed ones. I own a condo, but it's downtown. My husband and I would love to have children, We have very few options to upgrade. Both of us work full time. We have dual income and still, the affordability of an upgrade is very little and it's limited. The shortage is we're building one third of what is needed. This has to go ahead. This project is amazing. It simply addresses all of the issues that people argue about. They address every single one of them. I'm not urging you, I'm begging you to say yes to this project and stop saying no to housing projects. Those issues she mentioned, the ones the project supposedly addresses, they have to do with housing. The county has not been building the homes it needs to keep up with the growing population. The median home price is nearly double the national average. It's so bad that even someone with a condo downtown can call themselves a victim. A recent survey found that nearly half of millennials in San Diego are considering leaving. The young people are leaving. They're getting done with college and they're leaving. I'm a San Diego native. My son was born here. Odds are he won't stay here, and that's sad. It goes on like this. Speaker after speaker says they can't afford a home, or their kids can't, or their grandkids can't. The supervisors, there's five of them, they listen, but they don't say anything. Eventually, it's time for the other side. Good afternoon, Preston Brown, resident of Hamul. We have a problem today here in San Diego. Hamul is a community near the project site. Like Valley Center, it's rural, at high risk of fire, and only has a few roads out, one of which is where Adar would be. What images will guide your policy decisions today? El Dorado Dream in the Hills or Adara the Charred Corpse? Romantic backcountry roads or future graveyards of evacuees? Are you willing to do a comprehensive risk assessment of the threat that Adara brings to the neighboring communities of Amul Dazura, Spring Valley, and Chula Vista in times of Santa Ana wildland fire events? Are you prepared to Thank do you. the hard work, get a fix on your location, Thank and you. make an informed decision? He goes over his two-minute time Next, limit. Please. A lot of the people speaking against do. A lot of them also mention what happened in Paradise, and that they're afraid the same could happen to them. After two hours of testimony, the supervisors finally react. 
In fact, at this point, I almost just throw my hands up because if we can't approve general plan consistent projects, I don't know how we're going to begin to make a dent in the housing crisis that's been referenced here. That's Supervisor Kristen Gaspar. Everything that we've approved is in the courtroom. All of the so-called leapfrog developments the county has approved are in litigation. But that doesn't stop them from approving another today. When the vote is called... Chairwoman Jacob, that motion passes with... It isn't as if the county is ignoring the fire risk. If a developer wants to build in a risky area, they have to meet a high standard of fire-resistant construction. And they do prepare evacuation plans. They're lengthy, and they have to get approved by CAL FIRE. But the point that people like Michael O'Connor and the residents of Homul are making is that these evacuation plans don't address how they're going to get out. Their plans are written as if those new communities existed in a vacuum. It's insane. It's insane. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's Scott Sutherland. He's on the town council for Elfin Forest Harmony Grove, one of the communities that's suing the county. Developers want to build almost 800 homes along their escape route. I ran into Scott at the town's 4th of July picnic, and he quickly began imitating county fire officials. No, no, no. We're going to stage the evacuations. Our plan is to stage the evacuations because we have very tight control over who gets the phone call as to when to leave, as if nobody can smell smoke. That was the exact plan in Paradise. They had that exact same plan. That's the plan they have for us, the Paradise Plan. Scott and his community have reason to be doubtful. During a major fire in 2014, they were trapped in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Nobody was killed, but it made it hard to ignore how vulnerable they are. Before leaving Elfin Forest, I got a chance to see the town's 4th of July parade. There's only one road in or out, so they basically have to shut the whole town down. It's a rural parade. People go by on horses and throw candy from truck beds. There's a pony with a hat named Felix. All of a sudden, one of the kids lobs a water balloon at a passing car. And then someone in the car shoots back with a water gun. A whole skirmish breaks out. I've got all this fancy audio equipment, so I was warned ahead of time that this would happen. It's a local tradition. They don't do fireworks. Now, Jake, aside from these evacuation concerns, were there any other reasons for San Diegans to oppose these new developments? Yes. Environmental activists from groups like the Sierra Club, they made the point that sprawling into the hills means longer commutes, which increases dependence on cars and ultimately encourages a lifestyle that puts more carbon into the air. We've touched on climate change a bit throughout the podcast. Experts say it's making disasters even worse. We've known for decades now that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to keep these disasters from getting worse. In southern Florida, some say learning this lesson has never been more urgent. Here's Jordan Laird. No more coal, no more oil, keep your carbon in the soil! No more coal, no more oil, keep your carbon in the soil! That's a Fridays for Future protest outside Miami City Hall. It's an international movement of high school students who skip their classes on Fridays to attend demonstrations and demand action to prevent further climate change. These young people want Miami's mayor to, as their banner says, declare a climate emergency now. Much of Miami and Southern Florida recognizes climate change is affecting them. The city of Miami Beach, a barrier island, is already suffering from sunny day flooding or tidal flooding. The city has taken on a $500 million project to raise five miles of road and install hydraulic pumping systems. 
the pumps, raising the roads, that all of that is bullshit. None of that is any real solution. That's Rachel Collins, a 22-year-old resident of Southern Florida who's very involved in climate change activism. There's a difference between mitigation and adaptation. And right now, the majority of the conversation is being dominated by adaptation. And we're not focusing and fighting hard enough on mitigating the effects of climate change because this is an overwhelming problem. There's a bathtub analogy where you're in the bathtub and the bathtub is overflowing and water is spilling out all over the floor and that your bathroom's flooding. What do you do? Do you reach for the mop or do you reach for the tap? Raising sidewalks is getting a mop, but legislation to cut carbon emissions is the tap. Rachel shows me her first ever climate change protest sign. It's simple, written in black Sharpie on cardboard. It says, reduce your carbon footprint today. But now she says she knows better. She says the difference individuals can make is tiny compared to what governments and corporations can do. Going vegan, recycling, it's not gonna save the planet. If everyone, like tomorrow, went vegan, that wouldn't fix the problem. It's a systematic problem that needs like a systemic solution. When our water is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. When our future is under attack, what do we do? Stand up, fight back. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy Thank you for listening to State of Emergency. This episode was produced by me, Jake Steinberg. News 21 reporters Jordan Elder, Anna Huntsman, and Jordan Laird also contributed to this episode. State of Emergency is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona.